0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good to see all of you this morning on this beautiful rainy day. I love rainy days. It's good football weather. We're going to read verses 7 to 32, and then as we always do, we will go to the Lord in prayer asking His blessing on our time together in His Word. You will please look at verse 7. Mark writes, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Let's pray. Lord, these, as we sang just a moment ago, are the words of life to us. We have just been amazed again and again, week in and week out, as we see how you have crafted this story through Mark's pen to present Jesus as being much more than any man that any of us have ever encountered before. We have seen him so far as the Son of God. We have seen him as King of all, and now today we begin to see him as the Christ. And so leading off this story here, this section where Mark is going to present Jesus as the Christ, is this story of you sending out your disciples and at the same time John the Baptist being killed. And so we come today, Lord, and ask in advance that you will help us to understand these two stories and how Mark has put them together, open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand that there is a cost to following you, there is a cost to serving you, But if in comparison with what you are offering, salvation, forgiveness for all who place their faith in you. And so we ask your blessing on this time. May it be clear. Help us to, to process the text well so that, so that as we walk out today, we will understand you better. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, yesterday... Ed and Becca came out to uh, Nathaniel's football game over at Princess Anne Athletic Complex. He, uh, Nathaniel is on the courthouse Cowboys. I've told him repeatedly this is the one and only time in our lives we will ever root for Cowboys, ever, <laughs> amen? <laughs> Thank you. The only team I dislike more than the Cowboys is the Steelers. Since you amen first, I had to say that, uh, <laughs> it was a trouncing the uh, courthouse cowboys defeated the uh salem lions i think it was 36 or 37 to nothing it was a pretty rough game for them and so there was a good bit of the game since it wasn't really enjoyable to watch apart from just the trouncing you know trouncings are fun to a point but then after a while there's no competition it doesn't get any better Ed and i just started talking and ed asked me a question he asked so stacy what's your uh what's your hook tomorrow And what he was referring to is my tendency, and I guess I do this too much, I probably should stop if you're beginning to ask me about it in advance of Sundays, it's my tendency to begin a sermon with a story or uh, an episode, something, I typically do something humorous or something at least interesting that is designed to grab your attention, kind of pull you in, and at the same time then transition us into whatever we're going to be looking at for that particular morning. But when he asked me yesterday what my hook was for today, I told him, honestly, I I don't have one. I mean, this is as good as it's going to get right there, what I just said. I I had no hook. (laughs) Well, you want to give me a hook for beheading? (laughs) No. The reason, reason I don't have the hook is because of what I just said. When you look at the story that we just read together here a moment ago, this is one of the most graphic, gruesome, horrible stories that you're going to find in the gospels outside of the crucifixion and i it's wrong, really it's terrible on many levels and so uh, I didn't quite know how to transition us into that, nor do I really know how to get us out of that at the end it's just a it's just a rough it's just a rough section of the text and and not only is it a a rough section of the text, but, but as I explained last week, we're, we're beginning a new section now of Mark as a, as a whole. You know, so far we've, we went through the prologue in Mark 1, 1 to 13, and then we looked at section 1 of Mark, where Mark presents Jesus as the Son of God, there from 114, I think to 325 or 335, and then that section ends in what class? Rejection. You didn't remember, but it ends in rejection. When we went into section two, which is Mark chapter four, verse one to chapter six, verse six. And in that section, he is presenting Jesus as the king of all. There's nothing that will stand in the way of the king or the coming of his kingdom. And the end of that section, again, we see Jesus being rejected. And now we've come to section number three today, which begins here in Mark chapter six, verse seven, and it's going to take us all the way to the end of of chapter 15. And in this section, he is being presented as Jesus the Christ. He's not just Jesus, the son of God, not just Jesus, the king. He is Jesus the Christ. And I explained to you last week very briefly, and I'm only just quickly reminding you of these points, that this third and final section of Mark, which is by far the biggest, is going to take us almost to the very end is broken up even further into three subsections. You remember that? In in subsection one, you see Jesus's ministry expanding beyond Galilee. It begins to have a much wider, broader feel to it as we work through these next uh, couple chapters here. That's chapter six, verse seven to chapter eight, verse 21. The second subsection sees him on the road to Jerusalem. Each story we read will take us one step closer to Jerusalem until finally, in chapter 11, verse one, we enter the city. And that's the third and final subsection of this third section here of Mark, that final week in Jerusalem, a full five chapters given to one week of Jesus's life to address all the things that happened there. And guess what happens at the end of this third and final section? It ends in rejection. This time it's the crucifixion of Jesus. And so what we're doing today is we are beginning the first story in this first subsection of the last main section of Mark's gospel. We're practically done, right? We're practically done here at the end. And lo and behold, as we come to this first story in this first subsection of this third and final section of Mark's gospel, we find nothing other than another example of everyone's favorite 13-letter word. And take a guess intercalation. There it is for no one else who didn't know it was 13 letters or all the people who didn't know it was 13 letters. It's intercalation. And if you haven't been here with us for this, this is a word that keeps coming up in Mark because as Mark is writing his gospel, he is structuring it and putting it together in a certain way. And as he does that, he's been using this rhetorical device called intercalation to make certain points in certain stories. Intercalation is when you take a particular story, I call it story A here on the screen, and you begin to tell the story, but then you stop, and in the middle you insert a a completely separate story, story B. And when you finish telling story B, you come back and you You finish story A, that's intercalation, and the reason you do this is because as an author, as a writer, by putting these two stories together, you are trying to show your readers, you're trying to show your audience that the two stories have something to do with each other, particularly story B. Story B is being inserted in order to help you understand story A better. I would even go so far as to say, particularly in this case here, that you can't understand story A if you don't understand story B. Particularly in this case. It's been true of the other two we've seen so far, but I think it's particularly true here. And so so even though that may seem odd to us at first, that, that here in the middle of the story of Jesus sending out the 12 disciples to spread his ministry broader, that Mark inserts the story of the beheading of John the Baptist, there's a reason for that. It's not a, a haphazard arrangement of the text. Mark is doing something very, very specific, and, and that's what we want to understand. And so because of the size of this middle story and because of, of our time constraints here this morning, I'm going to have to do something that I do occasionally, that I never enjoy doing, but I, I feel it helpful at points, and so when I see it, it's helpful, I just do it. Today's a two-part sermon, okay? Meaning, by being here today, you are committing yourself to come back next week no matter what, to finish the ending of it, because I don't have any possible way of covering this entire section in one Sunday. And so I not only don't have an introduction for you that's worth anything, I don't really have a conclusion either, because the conclusion doesn't come until the end of next week, though I'll try to draw it together somewhat less awkwardly than I might. And so that, that's what we're going to do. This Sunday, next Sunday, we're going to work through this larger story with the purpose of trying to understand what Mark is doing by putting these two things together. And so without further ado, if you will, let's look at story B. We're just going to walk through it. Because it's pretty straightforward and pretty simple, at least at face value. The story begins by Mark noting that King Herod heard about it. And the question, of course, is good students, is what is it? Well, you simply need to look back into the context, what was happening right before this. The it is referring to the mighty works done both by Jesus directly and in Jesus' name here by his particular disciples. And make, Mark makes a little comment that in some respects seems unimportant at first when you read it here in the in the story. But I'm I'm telling you, it doesn't bode well for Jesus if you think about it. He says that when King Herod heard of it, or that King Herod heard of it because Jesus' name had become known. The, uh, this is going to be a continuing trend throughout the end of this book that Jesus' name is going to spread, and the stories of who he is and of what he is doing are going to continue to spread broader and broader throughout the, the land here. And Jesus is now being shown as no longer just a, a Galilean teacher, a Galilean problem. He is, his name has now reached the upper echelons of, of the political world of the first century that, in which he lives. So Jesus' name has been heard, and you'll see here in the next sentence that this creates quite a stir, because when Herod and his people hear of Jesus, and they hear what he's doing, they immediately begin to put forward some um, hypotheses, some, some... guesses as to who Jesus is and how it is that he is able to do all of these amazing things. Some of the people sitting around the boardroom that day in Herod's palace are saying to Herod and others that this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead, that that is why he is able to do all of these miraculous things. And we'll stop here and just note that the news of John the Baptist's death is just that. It's news to us. This is the first we've heard of it, because the last time we saw John back in Mark chapter 114, he was alive. He had been arrested and, and put into prison for some reason. Mark didn't explain that back in chapter 1, but, but he was alive. And here we've moved ahead five chapters some amount of time, and now he, we're learning that he's dead. This is new information. Mark's going to explain it in just a moment. Some people, though, around the table think it's John back from the dead. Other people think he's Elijah. And if you don't understand why they would be thinking that, that Jesus could be Elijah, you simply have to remember back to simply to like a year and a half ago when we were looking at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And we were recognizing the fact that before the Messiah came, the Old Testament clearly prophesied that Elijah would come first to prepare the way. Do you remember that? And so the people who had this expectation that the Messiah was about to come, they're not looking first for the Messiah, they're looking first for Elijah. And some people watching Jesus' ministry think maybe that's him. Maybe he's the forerunner of the Messiah here doing amazing works, preparing the way for the coming of Christ. So it's it's not a crazy suggestion that this is who he might be. Others, though, disagree. They just think he is a regular prophet, if such a thing exists, like one of the prophets of old, like an Old Testament prophet, maybe similar to that of Elijah, but not necessarily Elijah himself. These are the options floating around the conference table there in Herod's office as they're debating the news that they are hearing about this man, Jesus, about who he is, and probably what they should do about him. And I can almost close my eyes and see Herod sitting like, you know, in his armchair there at the head of the table, listening to all of his advisors and counselors making these suggestions and he's thinking about it and then opening his eyes, having come to a decision for himself. If you look here at what he says, clearly he's going with option one, that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And I would just ask you to stop because this will be important at the end and think about that. That's weird. It's weird because like, of the three options given, at least the other two would make sense, perhaps, from Herod's perspective. He is a mostly Jewish man. I think there's some, some other things in his background, but he's a mostly Jewish man who has been raised at least in Jewish culture. He's not a religious man, based on what history tells us about him. But he at least understands what the Old Testament has said and what they are expecting as a people for before the Messiah comes. And so if he chose to go with Elijah, I would understand that on a cultural basis. Or if he even just thought that maybe Jesus is a prophet, I would understand that on a very practical basis because clearly guys who can cast out demons and, and heal people aren't common, right? Not in that day at least. So if he had picked either option two or three, I would totally understand his reasoning for doing so, that he picks option one and believes that somehow God has come and taken a man whose head Herod himself has separated from his body and raised him from the dead is nothing short of odd. It's nothing short of weird that he would choose this amazing, miraculous option. And you see here in verse 16, him choosing this. He says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And as I read that, I don't know about you, but that, that comes across with at least a, a hint of guilt and fear to it, just a, maybe more than a hint. There's guilt and I think as he's taking the blame on himself and maybe a little bit of fear, like, Oh my goodness, what have I done? (laughs) I killed this guy and he's back. What do I do? Like you can you can feel a little bit of tension, I feel like on Herod's part, over what is going on here. Well, what exactly did happen to John? That's the question here. We know he's beheaded, but but why? Well, the rest of this middle story is devoted to explaining this. If you look at verse 17, we learn that it was Herod who had gone and sent and seized John and bound him and put him in prison back in chapter 1, verse 14. And we also learn why he did it. It was for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her Herodias. And I thought it would be helpful to try to show you this the like the connections because this gets very confusing along the way and because the the Herodians the family of Herod They're like big characters throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts. Even into the epistles, you'll see them coming up in different ways. And so I want to try to make this as clear as I can. So to begin with, we have to start with a man named Herod the Great. This is the guy who you read about in Luke 2 when you read the Christmas story to your kids on Christmas Eve or whenever you do that, if you do that at all. He's the guy who, when the wise men come to him and say, we found the, we found the Messiah, he's been born, he's in Bethlehem. And are like, oh, come back and tell me, I want to go worship him too, wink, wink, right? I mean, this is, this is Herod the Great. Herod the Great is an ambitious man. Herod the Great is a cruel man. He is a bloodthirsty man. He is acting as a governor over the entire province of what we would think of as Palestine today, which is a Roman province, right? He's acting as the governor of that, and he is a guy who is all about power. He also happens to be a playa. you know? You got to say it that way, too. He's a playa. Um, he, he's, he's a ladies' man. If we uh, ignore whatever um, dalliances or uh, mistresses or other things that he may have had, he had at least six and maybe more wives over the course of his relatively short life. Um, I'm going to show you just three of his wives here because these are the three that matters. He marries first, so I think this is his second wife, a woman named Miriam. He then, and I've put these out of order on purpose, marries another Miriam, That's the third one over there. She's his third wife. And then I think number six is Mouthface. I think he chose all M's to keep the monogramming thing right. (laughs) Made the towels easier. (laughs) H and M, sorry. They were there. Okay. These are three of his six or seven or more wives that he had. And with each of these... See, I've totally thrown you off now. With each of these wives, he's going to have a number of children. With the first Miriam, he has a son named Aristobulus. With the sixth wife, Malthaus, he has a son named Herod Antipas. And with the th- third wife, Miriam, he has a son named Herod Philip I. And what happened after Herod died was Rome decided to break up his kingdom, his province, into four smaller provinces. And sometimes you'll see his sons being referred to as Tetrarchs. You ever seen that in the Gospels and you didn't know what that referred to? That meant they were in charge of one of the four provinces. And so Antipas here is one of the Tetrarchs. He is the Herod that is in this story now. This is not the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus 30 years prior. This is his son Herod Antipas, and he's got these half brothers and quite a bit more uh, around him here in this political environment that they are in in Palestine. Aristobulus gets married and he has a daughter, and he names her after granddad, and he calls her Herodias. Well, um, at this point, just to keep this straight, recognize that Herodias is a half niece of both Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, right? So that's the relationship. Unfortunately, incest was common in noble families of that day, and so even though they are related, she marries her half-uncle Philip, and the two of them have a child together named Siloam, okay? Following that? So now, all right, Herodias is not only Antipas's half-niece, she is also his sister-in-law. Salome is his grand-niece on Herodias's side and his just regular niece on Philip's side, You with me? That? But it doesn't stop here because at some point Antipas begins to get rather interested in Herodias and vice versa. And so he divorces his current wife, whose name I didn't even bother to look up because it's too confusing. And he gets Herodias to leave Philip and he marries her. And now it looks more like this Antipas and Herodias are married. Uh, Salome is still the child of those two, and Salome now is not only his niece on one side, his grandniece on the other, she's now also his stepdaughter. Okay, two observations on that. Uh, Just two. Incest makes for really complicated family genealogies. (laughs) Uh, And I can say that as a good North Carolinian who has family members related to one another, that's not a joke. Uh, Second... I'm not even sure Jerry Springer would want to deal with this family because there are more things, more intrigue, more messed up relationships all built into this. And so it is based on this crazy convoluted situation that John is now coming to Herod and saying, look, um, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I mean, this thing is wrong on numerous levels, right? It's wrong on numerous levels, and, and it's this that ultimately lands John in jail. But Mark kind of fills us in on something that we probably wouldn't have picked up on back in chapter 1, verse 14, when we were first told about Mark's, or John's imprisonment. He tells us that actually jail was the better option. Because the thing that ultimately was supposed to happen in Herodias's mind is she's got this grudge against him, and she wants him dead. She wanted him dead. But, but Herod wouldn't let her do it because he feared John, and so fearing John, knowing that he is this righteous and holy man, the text says, Herod embarks on this plan to keep John safe from his wife by putting him in jail. Herod is trying to protect him. You still following me? <laughs> he's trying to he's trying to protect him by putting him there, and not only did he keep him safe because he's afraid of him, but he also liked to go hear him in jail. I mean, it's a, A weird situation, but Mark makes it very clear he liked to hear John preach, even though it it perplexed him. And the word perplexed here means it left him not knowing what he should do. I mean, John's telling him, listen, you can't, you can't be with this woman. It's wrong for you to be with this woman. But, and Herod must be sitting there thinking, he's right, I know it's wrong, but I really want to, like, You feel this tension using this word here that he's perplexed. He doesn't know which way he should go, right or left, yes or no. What should he do? It's the idea of being torn, of being in doubt. And so that tells me or causes me to at least assume that Herod recognized that what John was saying was true, that he shouldn't be with this woman, that he shouldn't be doing probably many other things as well. At the same time, though, he wants to be with her. What what should I do? And so John stays in this situation for some time unknown amount of time until, Mark tells us, one day an opportunity presents itself to Herodias. It's Herod's birthday. And he throws a little party for himself and his his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And history tells us that this particular story happened at at Herod's uh, palace that he had in the town of uh, Machaerus. Most of our time so far, I've been trying, again, to remind you that I'm trying to keep... Jesus' journey through Mark real for us to help us see it and visualize it as best we can because I want you to, to picture it correctly. We've been spending most of our time up here in the north around Galilee, but Machaerus is way down here in the south on the east side of the Dead Sea. This is where Herod had one of his palace fortresses. Here's a picture of it today, what's left of it at least. It's not a whole lot up there. It's up on the top of a really tall hill overlooking the Dead Sea, apparently on the backside of the camera from where it's taken. But this is what it would have looked like at the time John was there. Part of it's been cut away so you can see inside. And I want you to notice up in the top kind of center, there's a a courtyard with red tiles for roof. They're not just uh, taking artistic liberty there. They found the red tiles there in the rubble. Like This was part of the structure. It must have been very pretty at this time. In fact, here's a closer up reconstruction uh, of what it would have looked like there in the courtyard. And it's, it's in this particular courtyard, I would assume then, that the party is being held and into which Herodias' daughter Salome comes in and dances for Herod and all these other men. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be funny with this comment, so please don't laugh because um, you'll feel awkward if you do. Thank you. Um, I don't know how far to go with this, and I don't want to be crass or indelicate here, but I'll just say that I don't think this dance that she does is an expression of artistic ability, okay? Um, In other words, she's not probably doing ballet. I, I don't know how far we should go with it the other direction. Just being honest, I'm not quite sure how provocative this would have been, but I'm just pretty sure based on how it's worded that this is not something you would want to take your children to see. And Mark tells us that the outcome, of, uh, the outcome of this very delicately when he says that her dancing pleased both Herod and his guests. And I think as we read that, all of us should be like, kind of disgusted at that point because this girl whose age is not made clear, but probably young, who is his niece, his grandniece, and his stepdaughter, she's now being leered at. By her stepfather and uncle and great uncle, all at once, and all these other men that are gathered around her in a way that is probably very not appropriate. And you should get the creeps when you read verse 22. He's so pleased by this dancing, Mark says, that he says to her, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. In fact, he makes it even stronger, he makes a vow. Okay? We don't think of vows a lot in English, but he makes a vow to her, which is very strong. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom, which just to understand, he can't really do that because it's not his kingdom. It's Rome's kingdom. He's using a little bit of hyperbole here to, to emphasize that he's going to, whatever she wants, he'll do it for. her. He, he's not really a king, even though it's called King Herod. He's just a governor, but they call him that as a politeness. He's using hyperbole to say, "I'll do whatever you want." And again, I, I, can't, I can't prove this, but I wonder if even in the promise, there's a hope for something more. If that makes any sense? You get the creeps again. She goes out and she asks her mother, "Well, what should I ask for?" And seizing that moment, Herodias tells her daughter to go ask for the head of John the Baptist. Ooh. And so she does. She even adds a little dramatic flair to it of her own by asking for it on a platter. And obviously, I don't, I don't know what Herod was hoping for in this scenario with her. If he was hoping for anything at all, I, I don't know. I just kind of get that feeling in the text. But this request changes everything. It changes everything. Because when he hears it, Mark says, he was exceedingly sorry. I mean, you get the sense of real grief at this moment. As soon as those words come out of her mouth, he's like, no, not that. Like, Because oh. he feared John. He, he, he knew he was a holy and righteous man. He loved to hear him preach. And even though he may have felt some conviction at his truths and ignored those things, this is a guy that he had tried to protect from his wife. He had tried to save him, but now because of his oath and more importantly, Mark notes, because of all the guys sitting around who heard him say it and the pride and the the reputation he might lose because of what they heard and who they are, because of all of this, he doesn't want to break his vow to her. And so on the spot, he sends an executioner to the prison to bring John's head back to them. And Mark makes it very clear without being graphic, the executioner does this. He beheads John, and he brings his severed head on a platter, and gives it to Siloam, who in turn gives it to her mother. And the story ends very simply with the disciples of John being allowed to come in and take his body and lay it in the tomb. Now, I want you to stop. I'm just going to make a couple of observations, but we can't, we can't delve into them fully until next Sunday. But I want you to think about some of the things we've seen up to this point. One, I want you to think about John. He's been a non-issue, really, in Mark. He was mentioned a couple times in Mark 1, but since then he's been silent. Other of the gospel writers will talk about him quite a bit, give more information about things he says and does, to help you understand more of the relationship. But Mark has pretty much ignored him until now now at the beginning of this third and final section, which is presenting Jesus as the Christ and is going to culminate in the death, the rejection, the crucifixion of Jesus, we begin with the story of John's death. And John here, of course, is a messenger who was sent by God to his people. Later, we're going to learn from Jesus himself that John was Elijah he was that Elijah character who was going to come and prepare the way of the Messiah. So, so here John, a messenger sent by God, is, is being killed while in his life he achieved some popularity. And I don't mean that in a trite way. I mean it uh, as best as the only word I can think of, some notoriety perhaps uh, in some respects amongst the people. He, he wasn't widely, widely uh, received. In fact, through his preaching and ministry, you see what happens to him. He ends up offending those in power, Herodias. And ultimately, she doesn't dislike him because she, she doesn't believe him. She doesn't dislike him because he's speaking lies. She dislikes him for the very reason that he speaks truth. She, she wants to kill him. She plots against him, and when the time and opportunity is right, she takes it. And there's a clear emphasis there in the story on the importance of timing and opportunity. And when that moment comes, man, she pounces, even stirring up her own daughter to call for John's death. I want his head on a platter. She even she like, adds a little to it. Think of that. Note also that Herod... As a political figure, not a religious one, Herod, again, he's grown up in Jewish culture, so he understands the the scriptures to a point, I'm sure, but he is not a religious figure. He's a political guy. He's a governor. He, He is there to preserve his power and to enjoy his power. So he's a political figure, and yet perhaps no one else understands John as well as Herod. Because he fears him, he recognizes that he's a holy and righteous man, and he wants to protect him, if he can, from those people who are plotting against him, namely, in this case, his wife. And yet, when he's forced to choose between uh, his respect and perhaps even fear of John and his own personal political reputation and, and power, he chooses this instead of that and goes along with the plotting of others and letting John die. At his hand, John is killed for preaching truth and doing what God had sent him to do. Does that sound familiar (laughs) without giving next Sunday away more than I need to? Can you think of any other scenario we might run into somewhere in the Gospels where a messenger sent by God might be turned over for political power reasons, not protected by those who could, who perhaps even recognize things about him that Others may not have. Let me make uh, one more observation and then I'll be done for this Sunday, and you've got to come back next week. Remember how, at the beginning of this, I told you that as they're sitting around the boardroom, right, facing a decision about who, who Jesus is, they've heard about him, they've seen, heard the miraculous things he's done, and they're trying to figure out well, who is this guy. They had three options. It was Elijah, he's a prophet, or he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. And I just simply noted, if he'd have chosen the first two there, Elijah or the prophet, I would understand that, that he chose this, uh, well, his first option there, a third option for what I'm saying. When he chose the, the, the belief that it was John raised from the dead, I just marvel at his faith that God would come and vindicate his servant by raising him from the dead, Herod has that much faith to believe that God could, in fact, do that. And he's wrong, of course. Jesus is not John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's Jesus. John is now dead. John is gone. And yet, that God would eventually vindicate his servant by raising him from the dead, that's where the story's going. Okay? You got it? See it? Let's pray. Jesus, we are pausing here in the text, but not without recognizing just the way in which you have crafted this amazing story. Even here in the story of what happens to John, we see glimpses, hints of what is to come as the Christ, the servant must suffer and die and be executed at the hands of Pontius Pilate, but will eventually be vindicated, raised from the dead. And so we praise you this morning for being a God who vindicated your son, who declared him righteous and holy above all others. John was a sinful man. He may have been very righteous and lived to please you as much as he could, but he needed a savior just like we do. Jesus, your son, is the only perfectly righteous one, and yet he too is killed unjustly. And so, God, I pray that these truths will stand out to us, that as we think about them and meditate on them this week, when we come back together next Sunday, you will help us then to plug those into this larger story that that Mark has put together here so that we can see the bigger point that you have for us in your attempt to make us more like your son through your word. Thank you for the text. It is powerful. It is rich. Help us to understand it more and more in Jesus' name.